welcome to another edition of Chapters. My name's Jim Derrick, and on today's program, I am sitting down with a man who is no stranger to me. In fact, he's become a very close friend of mine, and his name is Frank Falvey. Welcome, Frank, and thanks for uh, thanks for being on the program today. Well, I'm uh, I'm nervous about it because I love to be on the other end of interviewing do. people. <laughs> well, if anybody uh, if anybody listening has lived in Franklin for more than uh, just a few years, I'm sure you know Frank. You either know him by sight uh, or you've listened to his programs on Franklin Radio and Franklin TV. And the subject for today's program comes directly out of a subject that Frank brought up on Frank's music, which was a discussion of time. But I found the conversation fascinating because I have always been interested in time as it relates to our human experience here on Earth. And how much time am I personally spending thinking about the future and how much time am I dedicating to being here in the present? And I think Frank brings a unique perspective to this. Let's start out by uh, introducing the audience to you, uh, those that don't know you, and talk a little bit about where you were born and, and how you got to be here in Franklin today. Well, I always believed I was born on Labor Day. Uh, my uh, my um, mother went to the Boston Line in Hospital, the outpatient ward, and uh, my father went to work at the Navy Yard. Uh, and for years, uh, my mother used to say to me that uh, one of the reasons I worked so much was that I was born on Labor Day. Well, I actually found out that wasn't quite true. I was born on September 3rd, 1941, uh, but it wasn't Labor Day. But the woman used to stay in the hospital for two weeks at that time. And my, the story that I used to tell at Fenway Park when we were in the Nissan suite and entertaining people, I would ask them, who is number four out there? <laughs> and they would not either know or, or they would know it was Joe Cronin. Sure. Well, the story is Joe Cronin's son was born in the Richardson house, which is a rich part of the Boston Line and Hospital for people that had money. Sure. And for two weeks, Ted Williams and all the other baseball players, Jamaggio, you know, all the famous players of the era would visit and see the baby, Joe's son, and see uh, the mother and pay a visit. And all the women would go to the windows, right? and look out and see all these famous baseball players. Well, what happened in the hospital, right? From the Richardson house, the nurse was wheeling this baby Cronin. And from the lying-in outpatient hospital or for poorer people, they were wheeling me. And the two ladies got to talking. And, you know, they, they sat down and I don't know. Well, they got us mixed up. They wheeled Cronin back to Valvey and they rolled me. This is before bracelets, you know, before the babies had bracelets or whatever, right? So really, I'm Joe Cronin's son. <laughs> so you're the rightful. I'm uh, the rightful. And, and, and he, baseball player. And last night I knew he was still living in Centerville, uh, Massachusetts. So 
Joe, if, you, if you're listening to the program, you know, I know you haven't called me, you know, all these years, but, you know. You started out as fast friends. Yeah. And in fact, switched at birth. So you, you're a city guy. You grew up in the city. I grew up in the city of Boston, uh, which was a, a perfect delight for me. Yeah. Uh, I love growing up in the city, but I spent my summers in Hudson, Mass. Yeah. At my grandmother's place. And I used to take uh, the train out there uh, by myself uh, out to Hudson and, and walk down to the cab stand and and take the cab out to my grandmother's place. Uh, her name was Hudson, but no relation to why the sure. why the town was named Hudson and spent my my summers uh, out there. And of course, at, to, the uh, at the time, Hudson was a very rural area, right? Oh, very rural. Yeah. yeah. We're talking, uh, you know, about middle to uh, early 1950s mm -hmm. uh, that I would spend out there. Mm -hmm. Went to public schools in uh, Boston, went to the United Methodist Church called Upper Memorial Methodist Church uh, in Forest Hills. And I met in church in, in the seventh and eighth grade, Linda Louise Coolahan. I still have a note from her in the uh, eighth grade that she wrote me and said, I like Peter Sexton. Please stop asking me out. <laughs> Underline in red. Okay. Oh, she was serious. Uh, she was serious. <laughs> but uh, that's where I met Linda. Uh, and I tell the story that one December uh, Wednesday, uh, we both took off from work. Uh, we took the milk train. Uh, we took the uh, uh, milk train down to New York City. And I proposed to Linda in the cab as it was going through uh, Central uh, Park. Uh, so uh, I went to one of the best high schools I could ever have gone to. It was Boston English High School. Uh, it was the first public public high school in the United States of America. Boston Latin was a preparatory school for Harvard University at the time. It was not public. It's older, but it was not a public school. One of the great things about English high school was that it, it was partly African-American. It was partly Roman Catholic. It was partly Jewish. And there were a few wasp like myself in there and there were some greek uh german and and so no one in that high school and it was all men at the time all all men no one in that high school had an upper hand as far as numbers or or a majority so i learned a a very fundamental lesson in high school and that was that diversity produced the best results. And so in, in my employment of years later, I was the first person to hire African-Americans in two different companies that I worked for. So the Nissan Baking Company was one. At, in Wonder Bread. In Wonder Bread. Uh, you know, for, for 13 years, I was one of the fresh guys. And then for 18 years, I was nicer because I was with Nissan Baking Company. <laughs> I went from ITT Wonder Bread to a family-owned S corporation, which means only five people own, own the uh, company uh, uh, of this baking company. Yeah. And uh, 
so that lesson about diversity, both from an age point of view, from uh, an ethic point of view, from uh, a men or women, you know, I put men in jobs that normally were for women. I put women in jobs that that maybe men would have would have done ahead. But it was that lesson from English high school uh, that partly grew. Having done uh, well over 200 shows with you, I do know you somewhat, and I know uh, a couple of things about you. One is that you're a man of faith. Yes. And uh, you mentioned the Methodist Church being an important part of your formation. Um, and secondly, I know that you're a man of uh, social justice and, and promoting social justice causes, and you have been doing that for, for many, many years, taking up uh, the torch for the little guy. You just mentioned that from an employment standpoint, but you also have been in, involved in town right here locally, uh, advocating for things like handicap access for trains. And, and uh, in fact, there's handicap parking now in the town common because of uh, initiative that you uh, uh, brought about. <clears throat> I just find it's, it, it's, it's so interesting to me to hear you speak uh, all those years ago having started out at, uh, at the Methodist Church and having uh, had that experience at Boston English, at how, how that, those experiences literally formed the person that you became? Well, certainly the, the Methodist Church there uh, uh, formed a lot of my uh, upbringing and belief because as a teenager, right, I was head of a youth ecumenical group in the Jamaica Plain area. Within the Methodist Youth Fellowship, I was also, as a teenager, instrumental in what they might have called a sub-district or youth gatherings. And after I had graduated from high school, which I've mentioned a number of times, I had the privilege of going to the United Methodist Youth Fellowship out at Purdue University in Indiana mm. and heard Eleanor Roosevelt, Odetta, Dave Rubeck. And, and so early on, I became familiar with the Psalms and I became familiar with Proverbs. And one of the things I, I do want to speak about is wisdom and knowledge. Right. And so much of that is grounded in Proverbs and in Psalms. And so as a, as a youth, I was very involved in, uh, as a teenager in high school in, in those activities. I went one year to West Virginia Wesleyan, which is the United Methodist uh, College, and they had chapel every week that you had to attend. I had to take... Uh, uh, Old Testament, New Testament history, two different semesters, and certainly excelled in that area. Sure. And so this, this thought of wisdom and this thought of history, the other thing at that time, civic responsibility was a high point of the educational service. Uh, and being involved within a community and no matter if you're a christian or or church in community christianity really all only exists to the extent 
that you're in a community. Mm-hmm. Now, I, in, within the town of Franklin, <laughs> used to go to the town meetings when you voted on the stuff that was coming up before you, right? Well, I've always had what's called the gift of the question. (laughs) I see things at a different perspective than I think normal people do or see things differently than the majority of either news or what's in. I was never, ever part of an Mm in-group. All right. I've always been kind of an outsider I always have considered myself somewhat of uh, an agitator uh, on purpose uh, to to bring out issues, to flush them out, uh, and and had the gift of, of asking uh, pertinent questions, which a lot of times people don't like. You've immersed yourself in studying agitators. I mean, I know Utah Phillips is is someone who a oh, uh, labor movement guy who you actually brought here to Franklin, and uh, I, I did brought him up to the high school. <laughs> I paid him to speak to um, two high school groups of uh, of uh, history uh, mm-hmm. classes, uh, and Bruce Bruce's gift was the labor movement back in the 30s and 40s, and particularly the IWW, the International Workers of the World, which is one reason that for 10 years, uh, I was the treasurer of the Bread and Roses Festival. Right. And one year, the president, which happens on Labor Day, every mm-hmm. uh, Labor Day, this year it was virtual. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, Frank, it's important to be an agitator? Well, I don't think everyone should be an agitator or is cut out for it. I think everyone should realize a civic responsibility. And as Jeff Roy keeps lamenting, you know, the town election is going to affect you directly more than in a presidential election is going to affect you. And I believe that you need to be grounded in community. I, I go back to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton. It takes a village to bring up a child. It, it takes an educated uh, community to be involved. Now, different people within that community have different gifts. Mm-hmm. They, ha- they have different areas that that they're good in uh but you need to participate you you need what is the role of the agitator the role of the agitator is is first of all to bring out maybe what's not going right maybe what is being said is not exactly the truth or exactly the reason maybe to bring out the other side of, of a point of view that isn't necessarily being accepted. Um, and, and to bring out things that are, are just wrong. I mean, it, it is just wrong that a law that, sa- that says things need to be handicapped accessible, your church, your buildings, 
you need handicap accessibility. But within that law, it says if you don't spend more than 25% of renovating that old building, then you don't have to make it a handicapped accessible. Right. So that law is being abused by uh, the MBTA in every town that has a, a railroad station that is not handicapped accessible. Mm -hmm. They're obeying the law, mm -hmm. but it's not right. Right. I want to remind everybody, we're speaking with my friend and colleague here at WFPR, Frank Falvey, and we're talking today about uh, wisdom. We're going to talk about time. We're going to talk about the notion of time as we move forward. And one of the reasons for this conversation started actually, or the impetus for this conversation started a few years ago when Frank and I were sitting in the, in the studio and Frank, you'll remember you, you took a moment and you looked at me and you said, and I'm paraphrasing, you said, you know, Jim, at, at some point as a person who is growing older, you start to feel like people are looking at you as being less relevant. You start to feel like your voice is not valued. And you start to, you start to feel almost warehoused in terms of uh, your relevance in society. And it's something that really had an impact on me because I have always bristled at the way culturally we treat our elders. Um, there are countless people that are, walked away in nursing homes or are just marginalized. And that's, that's really the word marginalized because of their age and what we're missing. First of all, it's, it's a, I think it's a human tragedy, but secondly, we're missing the wisdom that is gained by all those years of living. And importantly, by people that are able to, as you said, pay attention along the way and contextualize the experiences that they've had and bring them forward uh, and it's such a rich opportunity that we miss when we warehouse people and marginalize them. We miss the ability for our youth to gain insight as to what's going on in the world around them by having real conversations with people like Frank. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down with you today. And I was particularly drawn to your conversation today about time. And uh, we just set this up by listening to some, just a small part of your history uh, in your formation. Um, I'm curious over the years, how you have managed to very much ground yourself in the present uh, and, the and what the importance of the notion of grounding yourself in the present and living in the present what importance does that hold in your life today? Well, well, let let me begin with your first statement, uh, Jim, about uh, age. When I was working, when I had kids in school, when I was uh, younger, I I I had much more influence. And people people would ask me to do things. People would ask me to speak, or or uh, I, I had influence. But now, somewhere, I don't know, after the age of 72 or whatever, I'm no longer relevant. People don't want to uh, hear what I have to say. I'm no longer asked necessarily to be on a, a committee. I'm no longer asked uh, uh, maybe to speak at different uh, occasions. Uh, 
So there is a point in America that older people are just kind of passed over. In this coronavirus, uh, to me, has the highest example of what I'm talking about. I want to give you numbers where at, at a point that there were only 261,000 people that had died of coronavirus. Please listen to these numbers carefully. Over the age of 85, 82,000 of them were over the age of 85. Between 75 and 84, 71,000 of them. Between the age of 65 and 74, 56,000. And between the age of 55 and 64, 32,000. In other words, a total of 241,000 people out of 261 died because of coronavirus. Only 21,000 were under the age of 55. Mm. 21,000. Mm. You look at the news media, and what are they covering? They're covering children that might have died. They're covering, covering young uh, first responders that might have died. And, and I'm not diminishing that they died. But you never, ever heard that out of 261, 100,000 people died in nursing homes. Mm. You mm. never, ever saw interviews with older people and, and, and talking about their friend's death. You mm. never saw grandchildren talking about their grandfather or grandmothers mm. that died. You, 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 you have a lot of concern, and rightly so, about school and children going to school. But where is the news about all the people that are old that have died? This is an indication to me that, yeah, okay, you're old. Goodbye. Right. You know, you're, you're old. Uh, you lived, uh, you know, we hate this saying, you lived a long life. But the, these are the people that are being affected by coronavirus, which I, I'm pointing out is just a simple fact of even if you didn't have the coronavirus, these people are, are being not paid attention to. They're being disregarded. Right. right. Now, it's a manifestation of, of uh, or the lack of value we place on the elderly. Don't value them the way we should. And, and, and the news is it considering them newsworthy? Right. On on age, we're just ignoring older people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On time, uh, getting getting back to time. Yes, the present has always been a concern of mine, and I've lived in the present. And I've lived in the present because experiencing the present is more important than collecting material things. Okay. I've never been one that has had, I mean, a, a goal to achieve this or a goal to, to own this. I, I, you know, from a financial point of view, uh, not that I have a lot of money, but I have been blessed that I, I don't have to worry where 
the next bill is going to be paid from. I'm not part of uh, I'm not part of the poor, but the middle class is becoming part of the poor. Right. My social responsibility, and and again, from a religious point of view, I've grown up uh, a United Methodist, but my father and my Irish side of the family has always been Roman Catholic. Uh, I've gone to uh, the Benedictine uh, Abbey in Higa Mass sure. and learned this wonderful thing about Celtic spirituality yeah. that John O'Donohue used to have. Uh, and, and so time for them was not linear. Time for them was cross centuries. Um, and, and so time is a different concept uh, within uh, older, older Irish people. But it's important um, to you to live in the present. And one of those manifestations is I know you don't own a cell phone, much to my uh, frustration at times. But <laughs> you don't own a cell phone. Uh, you're not so immersed in, in technology that you're not when we have a conversation, you're actually looking directly at me. And you're interested and engaged. You're not text messages aren't going off and bells and whistles aren't aren't hammering away at you. And and also another thing that I've noticed, Frank, is that you are very deliberate in the way you live. So you're not somebody who's, um, as you said before, has mortgaged your future away so that you're wasteful. And I know other people that that live similarly. And I'm I'm always fascinated by their ability to in the midst of all this chaos, our chaotic world, our need for speed socially and culturally, when you find people that live almost as if they're on an island and they're unaffected by all that. But it has to be deliberate. It, it, it is. Um, and intentional. It is. And early in my career, I decided I was with ITT Continental Baking Company. And in the 60s, they moved middle management people all around, right? You know, you could be in Boston one day, Denver the next year, and followed by uh, Portland, Oregon uh, the next year. I I decided I was not going to move out of the Massachusetts area. When I went with Nissan Baking Company as a uh, plant controller, uh, they had plants in... uh, Worcester, they had plants in Central Falls, Rhode Island, a plant in New Bedford, Mass, a plant in Lynn. Okay, that was fine for me. I did not want to go to the headquarters in Portland, Maine, and I certainly did not ever want to go to to, uh, Brewer, Maine. So I always worked trying to find uh, or recommend people to go to those different places so that (laughs) I wouldn't ever be asked. So your number wouldn't come up. (laughs) My number wouldn't come up, right? Um, So uh, intentional, yes. I never necessarily wanted to have a bigger house. And so, yes, there's a lot of, when you live in the present, I'm what's called the nuts and bolts guy. I've always referred to myself, give me the nuts and bolts, okay? Uh, and, And the nuts and bolts mean... How does this work? What what makes it up? Not platitudes. Sure. But what are you going to vote on? If, sure. if I elect you to the uh, uh, House of Representatives, right? 
are you are, are you going to eliminate the penny? Right, I mean, right. why should we have the penny? Right. right okay. Right. Practical. Uh, practical. Practical things. You yeah. know. You know. Yeah. So, time in in intentionality. But one of the things that has always driven me is wisdom. Yeah. I go back, you know, to what I said about the Psalms, the Proverbs, and at like Coleman College, where one of my daughters went, they had a saying, and I wish I had it in front of me, about knowledge and wisdom, that seeking knowledge and seeking wisdom is really the higher goal, Right, is the higher purpose. And, and if, that's, if that's what motivates you, and I'm sorry, I just cut you off, but if that's what ahead. motivates you, meaning that if that's your central purpose, uh, which is to gain knowledge and increase wisdom, I would assume you'd have to live your life differently. Yes. Differently than possibly someone who was motivated by increasing their 401k by 25% in the next year, or someone who was interested in buying a second home or looking forward to the day they can retire in Florida. Um, Those are all goals that people may carry with them. Um, But if that's their central focus, they're going to live a lot differently than someone who is whose focused intention is to gain knowledge in any particular day and to increase wisdom. Buying on credit never bought me anything. So I always was a, if you can't afford it, pay for it. You really don't want it. The shakers. I love the shakers. Mm -hmm. The shakers were very practical, very intentional. People may not realize this, but Boston University offers that you can audit courses. When I retired, for a number of years, I went to the School of Theology, and I audited for five or six or seven years graduate courses in the School of Theology. So, yes, I, I live a a uh, a purposeful life that is more even though I have a huge record collection, and even though I have a lot of small pewter uh, that I've acquired, most of my emphasis is on experience. Mm -hmm. I've been on four or five different pilgrimages. Mm -hmm. I've been to uh, Scotland, England, Ireland. Uh, I've been to Jordan and Israel, not as vacations, but as what's called a religious pilgrimage. So all of this is intentional. All this really does take planning. But I learned from my mother, we lived in in most of my life growing up in the basement of a huge apartment building at 300 High Park Avenue in a three-room basement until I probably was in high school. Then we rented uh, a uh, the first floor in an apartment building. And then finally, my mother got her house. Yeah. yeah. And stuff happened, and my mother had had valued some collections, some stuff she collected, and that all came to naught. It, it, it all fell down. Mm. And I realized then and there that it it's not, it's not the possessions. It's not uh, your 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 necessarily your wealth, although you need to be financially well off. So, you're, but it's the experiences. I've been on twenty cruises. Yeah, 
uh, I've, I've cruised with my wife and I have been on 20 cruises. We have a cruise for a number of years now for sure. various reasons. But it, going places, I mean, recently, the experience of being able to go to the movies, the experience of being able to go to Sturbridge, the experience of going to Plymouth Plantation. Music festivals. Music festival, yes. which we can't go to, is, is wonderful. So, I yes, I am grounded in the music. I'm I'm grounded in other things. So I'm curious, Frank, you grew up in a time where people were looking, were, were probably operating a lot differently than you. As you said, you're an outsider uh, yeah. intentionally. Right. Did you find it hard socially? You know, and I'm speaking now because you're speaking to people, hopefully, that are listening that are younger and that are, are listening with interest. Um, did you find it difficult socially to be the outsider, to be someone that wasn't interested in buying the next biggest house or the next biggest car or joining the next fanciest country club? No, I wasn't because I was comfortable within myself. I was comfortable realizing who I was, what I considered my gifts in, in shortfalls. And socially, I didn't have a social life. I was, I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever had a party in my house. My house isn't very big. It's very small. I can't say that, that socially I went to a lot of different gatherings. I didn't. People my age that had children, younger children, we would go over each other's house on Saturday night and play cards because we didn't have any money to go anywhere else. <laughs> I, I just want to hang on that one that one statement that you made earlier that I think is the cornerstone of, um, of wisdom here. You said it's because I was comfortable with myself, right? With yourself. That is such, in my opinion, an important statement for anyone to be able to make and for anybody to wrestle with. So if I had to talk to my kids and, and could give them again, a piece of wisdom or advice, it would be pursue that, that inner peace spiritually, physically, the way you conduct your life, make sure that you're, that you're in relationship with yourself. Because really, when you shut your eyes at night or you look in the morning and you're shaving in the mirror, if you're not comfortable with the person that's looking back at you, then it's very difficult to live a life of contentment, of happiness. You love my song by Rosalie Sorrells. Mm-hmm that you have to go to sleep alone. Yes. I think that in many ways sums it up. You have to be able at night to go to sleep alone, even though you're lying next to the one you love. You, you have to. Now, this takes time in reflection. I didn't know all this when I was 20 years of age. At 17, I knew everything. Black was black, a white was white. Just at seventeen, <laughs> at seventeen, I was the smartest guy in the world. If you asked me any question, I could give you an answer, right? <laughs> you know, but a lot of gray comes into the life as you grow older. There's That's a right. lot of gray that comes in. But one of the things you need to do, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, every night before he went to bed, would purposely reflect on the day, the things he thought he did right, the things he thought he did wrong, 
the things that he thought God was calling him to do and the things that he thought he just ought to give up and put aside. Mm -hmm. And that process, although not every day, but at times of the year, like January 1st or, or like beginning of Advent, okay, uh, the, the Easter, there are times, uh, your wedding anniversary, your birthday, there are times that you really need to say, what is it that is important to me? What what is you know what is it that that grounds me, or what is it uh, that I'm missing, or what is it that I'm not doing for my loved one or my family that is going to come as a higher priority than my own priorities? And there are there are you know I I love. The Bible verse from Ecclesiastic that Pete Seeger made a song of. There's a time to dance. There's a time for joy. There's a time for sorrow. There's a time to sow. You know, that whole verse, yes, there is certain times in life uh, that you need to pay attention to. You talked about getting to know and like yourself and be content with yourself. And I know for a fact that doesn't mean that we're all perfect. Oh no! Oh, so no. we all make we all make mistakes. No. Some of them larger than others. What do you do with regret? Well, at this point of life, Jim, I have a lot of regret, but I have reached a point of life that. Uh, I thought I could look back on my life and, and what's happened and have a lot of happiness or, you know, a lot of satisfaction. And unfortunately, uh, to be truthful, I can't do that in this period of life. And that is a very uh, sad regret on my part uh, that I don't think there's aspects of my life and things that have happened that... Uh, I'm very happy about. I, I, I'll bet a lot of people listening, and I know I can, I'll speak personally, I can identify directly with what you're saying personally. So my question is, what do you do with regret? Do you, uh, is it something you think about daily? Is it something that you just categorize and say, well, those, those are some mistakes and I'll, and I'll, um, I'll leave it at that and um, focus on the good things. How, you know, how does one. At, at my time of life, at my time of life, you can't, you can't say, well, they're just mistakes and go on. My life at some point, and I'm not saying it's going to happen very soon. It could be 20 years from now. Uh, I still, but yes, every day I'm aware that I can't be like a lot of other older people and, and be happy with my life. And there's nothing left in time of my life that I can change that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to do some wonderful, miraculous things that are going to change that. Uh, so uh, to a large degree, I need to find other things that bring joy to me. Looking at the last snowstorm 
looking out in the backyard or at the trees or at how how white things are. Uh, looking in the morning when I get up to have my cup of coffee, I have a bird feeder for very, very small, small birds. Yes. I mean, so there are there are things uh, that I need to to find. I mean, Peter in allowing me to have this program called Frank's Music. I had always wanted to be a disc jockey. Yeah. And Peter, in his great wisdom, matched you and I up. And it just has been one of the joys. It was one of the pleasures of my life that I'm now a disc jockey, not in a traditional way uh, that uh, Pamela Hines does it. She, she really is does an outstanding job in the jazz program, but a disc jockey that that explores all music and that if you really ever want to know about who Frank Valvey is or who you are, you can really listen to that program and right. pick up uh, because we're, we're doing more than just playing music. There's That's a right. lot about our life that we're bringing to that show. For sure. You know, you just uh, brought us back to the time and uh, to time. And you, you said that while you have regret in your life, and, and I really appreciate your candor and openness about that, because I think if you're alive and, and you live in life, you're going to have regret. That's just the way it is. Um, but importantly, what you said as an anecdote to that is that you're focused in the present, right? The present on the beauty outside in your yard, on right. a bird feeder, on a radio program, on maybe advocating for, for the disabled around the town common. And what I don't hear from you is someone who is so focused in their rearview mirror looking backwards that they're not able to find important, valuable things to contribute in the day, that they're not able to, they're not so focused in the rearview mirror that they're not able to see the inherent beauty in the world around them. And what a gift that is to yourself. And Jim, as we discussed earlier, I'm not, looking for tomorrow with fear in yes. other words you you there's two sides of of tomorrow one can be looking at it with great dread and fear uh and you're not knowing what is going to happen tomorrow some of that is very very real but that's not that that's not a healthy attitude and the other health non-healthy attitude is looking at it what what you just said about uh, sadness that that you you know you, you're so sad uh, that you're looking for tomorrow that is going to be so much better and yet you're not doing anything today to make that tomorrow better. Right, right. It's such an important thing um, about experiencing life. Life is a continuum of experience, and this is something that I've gotten from the wisdom of my dad. Who, who really helped me refine over the years by living the way he's lived. He didn't lecture me on this, but he's lived a life this way. And he lived a life to make the experiences that he wanted happen. That's correct. In other words, it, he was just not passively experiencing things and categorizing. He was actively living a life that he, he knew he knew he, he wanted to live in those and that produced experiences, uh, good or bad, that, that he dealt with. 
You're absolutely right about that. And and what he taught me was that life is a continuum of experience all the way from the worst uh, possible sadness that you can experience and pain all the way through the greatest heights of joy. But this notion of happiness, I think, got perverted over time by human beings into culturally, you might remember back in the 80s and 90s, there was a big self-help explosion of books out there on how to attain happiness and Mm -hmm. and looking back on it it was so saccharine and so ridiculous because what what basically it was saying was you know if you you can get rid of the pain and you can you know avoid the pain you'll be happy and and what i found over time is that you have to live the entire spectrum of experience and truly live in it sit in the pain sit in the joy truly experience it on a daily basis in order to truly be alive that um that avoiding things like pain is is a impossible and b a fool's pursuit because you miss the lessons that you learn when you actually sit in pain when you sit in grief when you sit in physical pain when you sit in emotional pain if we look to avoid those painful experiences, we miss so much learning and, and so much of what it is to be human and to be alive. One of the things that in my generation, I think, ha- helped uh, modify that was that we believed, as the Bible said, that the seventh day should be a day of rest. We live our lives at full speed seven days a week. Our body, our mind, our physique cannot take living that way. Now, I'm not advocating that everyone have Sunday as a seventh day of rest, but someday during the week, you really intentionally, intentionally, have to rest. And rest means not doing work uh, uh, that you normally do. Uh, rest means uh, uh, maybe reading. Rest means maybe going to uh, a baseball game. Rest maybe uh, when when I was a young uh, lad, uh, my folks and I either went uh, for long walks through the Forest Hill Cemetery, went to Franklin Park, went to the uh, Arnold Arboretum. I mean, you need that day of, of rest and technology, and you need to redefine in, in today's day and age what is rest for you. But if you keep going as our society, and, and it's like the baking industry really was their own worst enemy because if one one uh, uh, bakery uh, like Wonder Bread, if they were going to go out and uh, work five days in a holiday week, that incurred overtime because they were going to be out in the market. Every other competition to Wonder Bread would do the same thing. And they both lose tons of money mm-hmm. because of what other people in the competition was doing. That's not helping your individual life. Um, 
I, I really think you got to go back and realize that physically and from a mental, emotional point of view, you need a day of rest every seven days. Yeah. There's a very wise Indian philosopher, and I, his name is Sadhguru. One of the most interesting lectures that I heard of his was him speaking about joy. Something Pardon? I've never experienced, Jim. Uh, I, I think you and I, a long time ago, had this conversation, and I could see the shock on your face yeah. when I said that. You just saw it again. <laughs> um, I, in the Bible, there are seven fruits, and joy is one of them. I'm not there yet either, but I think the pursuit and the way you've lived your life is certainly on that continuum, more close closer to the joy experience than the temporary happiness that one achieves out of a new material possession. I had an ancient history course taught by Mr. Phelps. Uh, he wrote all sorts of stuff on the blackboard, and the course probably wasn't named correctly. It probably should have been Greek civilization and Roman civilization. I was absolutely fascinated by this course. And I learned about philosophy and I learned about Stoicism. Stoicism is a philosophy that says you should not experience things on a high and joyful end, and you not, should not experience deep depression. You should, your emo, you should keep your emotions in the middle track, uh, balanced. Uh, not, not that you're always going to be balanced. You're going to go to somewhat to one side, and at times you're going to go somewhat to the other side. But the objective is not to let them get out of control. And I don't know why, but I've always felt that if I followed that, then I would not let my maybe anger or, or uh, be so overjoyed uh, that it would affect me w too much one way or the other. For me, the, the, the life journey has had markers that, uh, you know, you know, deja vu. Yes. I look at those deja vu experiences as markers that I am on the right trail. And uh, I think another thing I've always said, you have to do it here and now the song by uh, Phil Oaks, because you can't do it when you're gone. Right. Uh, my concentration is not looking at the afterlife that I'm going to do things. I have to do them here and now while I'm present. That doesn't mean that I don't want to prepare myself for an afterlife and be open to whatever nature or non-nature that takes. But it's the, the, the here in the now, the journey that I'm on. And I think, as I said before, when you reach this certain age, you can look back on life and see some of the interesting happenings that maybe, maybe you thought just happened by luck, but maybe somewhere there was a purpose behind it. I graduated with high honors. Why? Because I found something that came natural to me. How many people are blessed in life 
that they was that an accident? I mean, was was there somewhere a plan for me to to find that? I mean, even when you look back on your life at this age, it's interesting where the pieces come and fall in yeah. uh, to the to uh, how your life unfolded. Jim, I've always have brought smiles to other people's faces. I've loved hats all my life. I've always worn them, particularly cowboy hats. Um, I love to do flat footing at a dance or someplace. I, I had a knack, at least of people even from distances or whatever, you know, just kind of smiling or cracking up. And, and I've always had the ability uh, to ask the questions and, and, and bring out of other people uh, stories that people would have never heard of. But I think my most remarkable thing is uh, when I left uh, this in uh, baking company, I could grow a beard. And the beard was white. And my, my physique, let's say, lent it to uh, having somewhat of a belly. <laughs> <laughs> and if I put on these trim reading glasses, I really look like someone else between Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> and I, I would call myself St. Nicholas. And I had an elf at home that bought a Crayola, uh, Crayola crayons and wrapped them in Santa Claus paper. And I still have this red coat with many, many different pockets. And I would, would just be present. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be St. Nicholas at, at some function, but I, I would more or less just be, you know, present someone. And some of the most wonderful things in life uh, really happened around that. And then Franklin, years ago, they used to have a train a Santa Claus train that went out of uh, Forge Park and kind of slowly went out and went past Norfolk and then slowly came back. And uh, I would be the Santa Claus on the train, along with uh, uh, Jackie Ash would be Mrs. Santa at times. My wife at times was Mrs. Santa. Uh, Jackie Ash's uh, husband uh, was one of the people that really put this together along with another uh, lady uh, that was very involved. And the main thing was the high school st students would would have uh, be frosty, would hand out coloring books, song books, uh, would sing songs on the train. And my main function was to to really, uh, have my picture taken with a, a lot of families there. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I've had my picture taken on boats. I've had it taken in bars <laughs> up in Bangor, Maine. I mean, my picture has really got to be pretty well worldwide or throughout the United States. And so much of, the, much of uh, me being accepting of who I am and who I look like, and I've devoted a lot of time to uh, discovering Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. If you want a two-hour lecture 
<laughs> Jim, we did a program. We did. On, we did a program on uh, Access TV about St. Nicholas and Santa Claus. If anyone wants to re-see that program, just call the, the studio sure. and, ask, and ask for it to be rerun. Ask Chris Flynn to rerun it. But when you know who you are, when you know who you can be and know the gifts that, that might bring a smile to someone's face, go do it. And, you know, Frank, I'm so glad you brought that story to the forefront uh, in the late 80s as a brand new Franklin resident. I was standing in Dean Bank and a fellow that resembles you put his hand on my shoulder and I turned around and much to my surprise, there was Santa Claus, St. Nicholas being played by my friend and my now friend, Frank Falvey, gave me a warm pat on the back, wish me a Merry Christmas. And I went home that night and said to my wife, we moved to the right place because St. Nicholas is here. And by the way, the fact that the beard was real and that your presence was clearly genuine uh, made a huge difference uh, for that St. Nicholas and for that experience for me. And I also went on the train ride with my kids and got to experience that. And little did I know that that was, uh, would become a uh, deep and lasting friendship that we have today, but separated between that time were many, many years where I always wondered who the guy was that played St. Nicholas. And happily, I get to do radio programs with him now. So uh, you're right. Not only did you have a knack for it, but you certainly um, created many, many smiles. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that walk around town today thinking about their first interaction with St. Nicholas and Franklin and how it warmed their heart. It's conversations like these, in my opinion, that we need to pursue. Go and have a conversation with someone about what their experience has been on this planet, because I promise you'll come out smarter for having had them and certainly more fulfilled. Frank, I thoroughly appreciate our friendship. I appreciate the time that we spend together on our programs. We, we have a great, great time. But as you said, importantly, we get to know each other. And for me, it's been a complete joy. So thank you very much. Well, it for me, it's been outstanding. And it's been a, a wonderful communication of, uh, of two people trying to seek the wisdom and the knowledge to impart to each other. And I've, I've been in totally... Uh, am thrilled by your abilities and uh, your your commitment to uh, the Safe Coalition, to the community, to your family. I hope uh, the listener, both in this program and on the others that we do, find it fascinating. So, for my guest Frank Falvey, my name's Jim Derrick saying thanks for listening to Chapters, and we'll see you next week.